Thank you, Rachel. Callahan and Connor. I think Jeff can take some time off and we'll just let those guys preach. They're unbelievable. You know, I was thinking about this when Rachel was speaking. The, Jesus actually said, when you welcome a child, you welcome me. Jesus speaking. Not just me, but the one who sent me. So in other words, when you welcome a child, you welcome God. I love what Rachel said about sitting behind a computer, you're welcoming God. You're welcoming Jesus. When you uh, put your arms around a kid who you may not even know, you're welcoming God. You're welcoming Jesus. Uh, those of you who are parents, uh, if you have teenagers, you may want to trade your Jesus for somebody else. I realize that, you know, for a, a short time. But it's pretty special, and it's great to be a part of this church. This is my church. I don't get to speak here very often, and there's some travel in my life, but I love sitting over here. I didn't even know there was a group over here, but I love sitting over here, and, uh, and I love Jeff. I've known Jeff and Amanda for a long, long time. Uh, I came to this church before Jeff was here, but I look forward every time to hearing Jeff speak. I think he's a great speaker. I think he is a uh, marvelous man of integrity, and I love how he talks about his family, and that's kind of the thing that I think warms my heart the most, that he cares so much about his family. And whether you are a parent, grandparent, single, a student, I think what I'm going to talk about today is, is pretty key and important. And the fascinating thing is it's actually about the heroes of the faith, but it also blends where we start talking about wisdom next week as well. We're going to look at Solomon. And Solomon obviously was a very wise person and had lots of wisdom, but the truth of the matter is, is he was a little goofy as well. And to talk about Solomon, you could talk about a ton of things. I'm going to talk about one little issue that he wrote about in the book of Proverbs, which is communication, how we communicate. It's not just for marriages. It's not just for singles. It's not just for kids. It's for all of us in terms of how we communicate. In fact, authorities say that people who are CEOs in business are actually people who, some are shy, some are outgoing, some uh, are very smart with math, some don't know math, but one thing they all have in common is that they're good communicators, so that's what we're going to look at today. But first of all, let's meet Solomon. To meet Solomon, there's four things that we need to know about Solomon. Uh, for some of you, you know a lot about Solomon, some may not know as many. Here you go. This is the Reader's Digest version of Solomon. His wealth, his wisdom, his wives, oh yes, he had a few, and his writings. So just to get to know Solomon, his wealth. Uh, during his time on earth, uh, it was said that he was the richest man on earth. In fact, many people, and there's even a book about it that says Solomon was the richest man who ever lived, including people like Bill Gates and people who lived uh, in, in this uh, day and age, although he probably didn't have as much money as they did. Comparison, he perhaps did. The scripture says in 2 Chronicles 9.22, and King Solomon passed all the kings of earth in riches. What's interesting about that is the people in that day, a thousand years before Christ, were, were not very rich, but the kings were rich. So you could always tell who the richest people were. It wasn't business people. It wasn't others. It was the kings because the kings taxed the people and the money came to the kings, not necessarily you know, to government. So he was the richest man uh, in that day, perhaps the richest man ever. Wisdom is another one. He was also considered by many to be the wisest man who ever lived. Again, there's books on that. And fascinating enough, in 2 Samuel 9.22, the same scripture, it goes on to say, King Solomon passed all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. So again, pretty smart guy. Now, this is where I begin to question some of his wisdom is the next one, his wives. Okay, uh, King Solomon had 700 wives. Can you imagine? And 300 concubines. 
So the way I figure that, I'm not a mathematician, but that means there's a thousand women in his life. I have enough trouble with one woman who I've been married to for 40 years, 112 days. That's Kathy Burns, the lovely Kathy Burns. And yet, the scripture says in 1 Kings 11:3 that Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Now, again, as we talk about wisdom in the coming weeks, it's important for us to understand this, that it says here, and there's a little, sen- a little section in this sentence that we really need to understand about him. It says that 700 wives of royal birth. So what happened in that day, and you saw this all the time, but he just happened to be maybe smarter or richer, is he married in alliances. So why there wasn't a lot of wars in that time was because, you know, he pretty much married every king's daughter or every king's sister. And so you've now got 700 wives. Again, this is where I question some of his his wisdom because I'm not sure that was the smartest. But again, they didn't do marriage like we do marriage today. And frankly, they didn't do communication like what we're going to talk about, even some of the wise things that he said. Okay. But then there's another statement in 1 Kings 11.3. And it says this. It says, and his wives led him astray. Oh, we could do a whole session on that. Not just about wives, because actually it's not the wives who probably were at fault. It was probably Solomon for marrying wives who are not of the same faith. So these wives led him astray, and actually Solomon, who was both brilliant and incredible and did great things, most known for building the temple um, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. But the fascinating side was that he allowed his wives to lead him astray. So he he allowed people to lead him astray. He he walked away from the faith. He started changing toward the end of his life because he was influenced by these these women. And then his writings, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. If you haven't read Song of Songs, it's kind of a love story that Solomon uh, is in part of. And also a few psalms. But he's most known for, for the book of Proverbs. And like I said, he's most known for building the Temple Mount. He walked Jerusalem a thousand years before Christ. But Christ walked the same streets as Solomon, at least when Christ was in Jerusalem. So it's pretty interesting. So what we're going to do is just take a little tiny look at what Solomon had to say about communication and actually a little bit about conflict. I don't know if you have any communication issues or conflict, but I know I do at times. There was a woman who uh, came with her husband to the doctor and the guy hadn't been feeling all that good, so he went into the doctor's office. She sat in the waiting room and she was there for an hour and a half, and he was being poked and prodded and tested for an hour and a half. Now, the doctor would come in and do some things, ask some questions, maybe draw some blood, and then he'd go out and meet with other patients, and he'd come back, and this was for an hour and a half. The woman sits there, not really knowing what's going on, but wondering what on earth is happening to her husband. Well, finally, after an hour and a half, the doctor opens the door with the husband. The husband goes, sits down in the waiting room, and the doctor just goes like this. And so she follows him in, sits in his office, said, your, do- your, son is, or your husband is very, very ill. And he's under a lot of stress, and I'm going to tell you what to do. And if you can do this, then he'll live. But if not, I'm afraid he's going to die in about 10 to 12 months. So the woman's face is stunned. Didn't know this was coming. Said, well, first of all, your husband, because he's under a lot of stress, it's very important that he has good breakfast. And I know he gets up at 4.30, and you get up later because that's what he told me, but you're going to have to make him a warm breakfast every morning. Is that okay? And she said, "I, I can do that. And great lunches. And then under... The stress that he's in, he's going to need his favorite meals for the next 12 months. Can you, can you do that? And she said, I can. Um, said, now, you're going to have to be pleasant and always be in a good mood 
make sure you take away his stress. The kids are, I hear, a little bit chaotic, and so what you're going to have to do is take the kids and only let him play with the kids, but don't have him do any of the discipline with the kids because, again, he has a lot of stress, and I'm afraid it will cause too much uh, problems in his, in his own health. Don't discuss your problems with him. Don't nag him, and don't be negative to him ever because, again, what's happening is it's going to heighten his stress. And most importantly, try to satisfy every need that he has, every whim, everything. Can you do that? The woman just kind of stares at the doctor, stunned, walks out the door. The man, the woman go to the car. The man starts driving. He says, boy, he, he thinks I'm sick, I would imagine, because he just did all these tests and poked and prodded and all these things. I mean, what did he say to you? You're going to die. <laughs> you know, relationships die if we don't communicate well and if we're not intentional about it. And the point is this, that communication, and Solomon, interesting enough, gets this, communication is the lifeblood of any relationship. Communication uh, really is a key that unlocks the door to a successful marriage if you're married. Communication breeds healthy families. Uh, poor communication breaks families apart. When it comes to marriage, experts tell us that 86% of all uh, marriages that derail or get a divorce or break up, whatever the issue is, is because of poor communication. 86%. Now, again, it may be on finances, it may be on sexuality, it may be on other issues, but 86% of marriages that go south go south because of poor communication. Say, uh, Husband and wife were at their very first uh, marriage conference. I have the privilege to be a part of about one marriage conference a month. And uh, many times the speaker talks about communication. The speaker was talking about communication. Many husbands are kind of dragged there. This particular husband was kind of dragged there. He was a little bit nervous about what was going to go on. And the speaker says, how many of you men, speaking to all of the men, how many of you men know the favorite flower of your wife? Men start looking down, kind of not wanting to be called on. Not this guy. He was pretty proud. He put his hand on his wife and said, it's Pillsbury, isn't it? Now, if you're over 30, you kind of get that. If you're under 30, you may not get what Pillsbury is, and you're going to have to ask somebody. But again, we make mistakes when it comes to that. Communication takes work. Communication takes time. Communication takes focus, practice. And for many of us, it takes actually kind of relearning from past negative family experiences. Maybe you were raised in shame-based parenting. Or maybe your mom or your dad um, didn't model for you a good, healthy marriage. And so you're not sure how to do the communication piece, but communication is critical. And Solomon gives us four amazing principles. Actually, he gives us a lot more than four amazing principles, but he gives us four amazing principles about communication, not just about marriage, but communication in general. Number one is power. In fact, the principle is a proverb, and again, Solomon wrote the Proverbs, Proverbs 18, 21, the tongue has the power of life and death. So what you say matters. Words matter. A few weeks ago, I Twittered something on a Twitter account. I work for the organization called Homeward, and I Twittered, it takes two years to learn how to talk, and it takes the rest of your life to learn how to control what you say. Well, that's the case for all of us. It ended up being retweeted, and millions of people saw it. The reason it was so important to many people was because that's our story. For many of us, we all communicate, but some of us don't communicate good, and many of us don't have a filter like we would like to have. The Bible says that in James chapter 3, talking about words tearing down, the Bible says the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. 
Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. See, words break apart relationships. All of you know that. You've experienced them. Words like, I hate you. You ever had that said to you? I have. It hurts. Um, I wish I would have never married you. Uh, Calling them a name. Son, I'm disappointed in you. Or I, I don't think you'll ever make it. Things like that. It breaks things apart. My wife calls those bee stings. Constant bee stings. Words also build up. I love you. Thank you. You're amazing. I'm so proud of you. Those are a breath of life. Words have the power to change your world. And many times as Christians, we don't think about how important words are to the people that we love or that the people that we work with. Here, watch this video. I wrote the same, different words. Sometimes what we need are different words to communicate to make our relationships healthy, and actually Solomon talks about that. Will Bowen wrote a book called A Complaint-Free World. It was a best-selling book, New York Times, a number of years ago now. And his premise was this, that try to not complain for 21 days. Don't complain about the weather. Don't complain about major things. Just don't complain for 21 days. He said in his book that it took him eight months to do that. He had tried for 21 days. He would get a certain amount of time, and then he would, you know, slip up, and then he kept going. But for a lot of us, the way we speak, the way we communicate is actually a negative habit pattern. It becomes our release, how we go, what the pattern is. And what we're realizing here is that the first principle is power, that our tongue has power. Our our tongue has power to heal, and our tongue has power to curse. Our tongue has lots of power. Our words have power. And for many of us, it's back to the discipline of making better decisions about the way we communicate, and it can change the way we have relationships. Well, Bowen said, don't complain. But actually, complaints and negativity draw people apart. Uh, affirmation, encouragement brings them together. Now, there's times when you obviously have to say something negative to someone, and that's actually a withdrawal. And if you do too many withdrawals, then what's going to happen is the relationship's going to go south, no matter what the relationship is. It could be your parents. It could be uh, your spouse. It could be somebody at work. But the truth is, is that your words have power. That's obviously an important scripture. So power. Words can tear apart. Words can build up. Secondly is 
Principle number two is guard. Power and then guard. The scripture says, and again, it's, it's one of Solomon's best, I think. He says, those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. Many of us probably need a better filter. Those who have a good filter tend to have a better relationship with people. Those who don't have a good filter don't have as good of a relationship with people. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So kindness matters and, and tone matters, you see. How's the tone in your home? How's the tone between the person that you're thinking about right now where there's communication that might be a problem? If the tone isn't good, if there's not a lot of kindness, if it's more negative, then frankly, the atmosphere is not going to be good. If we don't guard our tongue, then it can become quickly negative and chaotic. And if your relationship with somebody is negative or chaotic, it's probably because we're not obeying in some ways this particular principle, those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. Now, for me, it's triggers, and I actually talked about these triggers, and I'll do it very quickly. I talked about these triggers one time on the stage when we were talking about marriage, when we were having one of the date nights, but the triggers for me, and these may not be for you, but the triggers spell the word halt, H-A-L-T, okay? If I'm hungry, if I'm angry, if I'm lonely, or if I'm tired, then my triggers are those, and sometimes then it means that I'm not going to guard my tongue as well, and it means that I'm going to develop calamity, uh, calamity with whoever I'm you know, communicating with. Especially for me, it's tired, but I want to go through. I'm hungry. If I'm hungry, then you know, I like to say that I get hangry. Hungry and angry, you put that together, and you know, for some reason, if I'm hungry, I just get hangry, and I kinda, you know, I'm not in the kind of mood that I want to be in. I can be up for you, but then I come home, and one of the questions I have to often ask myself is, am I only giving my family my emotional scraps? The way I know if I'm only giving my family my emotional scraps is if I'm not communicating well with them, or if I'm, not, or if I'm communicating in a negative manner. See. I love the new Snickers commercial. It says, you aren't yourself if you're hungry. Now, I'm not sure that Snickers is the answer to, uh, you know, your health. But again, hungry. Angry is a biggie. The Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Some of you don't communicate well because you're angry. And your anger may not have anything to do with the person that you're communicating with or want to communicate with. But you're angry and you're not dealing with your anger. Now, fascinating enough, remember this, the Bible doesn't say that you can't be angry. The Bible actually says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And the reason is this, because what we find is when somebody's angry and they just hold on to it, then at least low-level bitterness begins to bubble um, to the top. And so there's bitterness and resentment, and it oftentimes comes out in anger. So anger, obviously, is not going to, you're not guarding your tongue when you're angry a lot of times, lonely. No, I never thought I would be a lonely person. I remember when I was in college, a man named Ron Klein, who actually married us, Kathy and I, 40 years and 112 days ago, uh, Ron Klein said, leaders are lonely. And at that point, because I was a freshman in college, it never dawned on me that I'd be lonely. I'm an outgoing person. I love people. And I had a lot of people around me. But over the years, what I've realized is that sometimes even us Christ followers who choose to go a different way become lonely. And in a relationship, when people are lonely, that's when things like affairs come. I don't think people are drawn into affairs just because of sexual tension. I think they're usually drawn into affairs because they are lonely, because they are getting needs that aren't being met. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing on the part of the person who's going to have the affair. That's not the answer. But again, with loneliness, many times our communication goes south, and that's, again, for me, it's a trigger. If I'm feeling somewhat lonely, then I'm not going to be as effective in my relationship with Kathy or with my relationship with my kids. And then tired, that's probably the big one. 
for me anyway, and I think it's a big one for a lot of us. I call it dangerously tired. Somebody once said to me, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And I'm convinced that most of the people in this room are so busy, we're overcommitted and we're underconnected, and so it's a trigger for us, and all of a sudden we don't communicate well, and we also don't guard our tongues as well. I was at Big Mariners a couple of years ago, and I was speaking at the Irvine Church. I, I actually was the first youth pastor at that campus when I had hair, so it was a lot of years ago. And so I was there, and it was a reunion for me. I got to see some people. I think it was around Thanksgiving, and I saw some people I hadn't seen for a long time. And I came off the stage, and I saw a man who I had known really pretty well, but we'd lost track. And I said, hey, how are you? And he said, well, you know, so-and-so and and I got a divorce. And I went, seriously? I mean, these people were like role models to me. And I went, really? What happened? How did you, you, like, fall out of love? And he said, no, it wasn't love. We were so busy doing so many other things that we got so tired that we just couldn't do marriage like we had hoped to, and so we finally just broke it off. But it was never about love because I still love her, and I think she still loves me. And I thought to myself, how sad that because we get so tired that we can't communicate and our filter goes wrong and we don't guard our filter. Principle number three, be gentle. Again, Solomon says it right here. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. There's that word again, see? Harsh words cause conflicts. Harsh words cause conflicts. Now, part of that is because of all the other things that we're talking about, but really the way to communicate is to be gentle. As soon as somebody gets harsh with anybody, as soon as somebody shouts, as soon as somebody wants to go push, as soon as somebody um, goes into shame-based parenting or shame-based discussions for any other way, then immediately the relationship goes south. And so again, this particular principle tells us to be gentle. Be gentle. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. One of the key elements of, uh, that gets us into trouble is when we come to communication and conflict and our words become harsh. So for, again, many of us, we're going to have to deal with our anger. I want to teach you to dance for just a minute. I want you to look at the negative conflict cycle. This is something that actually Doug Fields and I created for a book that we have that came out today, okay? Actually, tomorrow comes out. It's called Getting Ready for Marriage. It's for those who are seriously dating or those who are engaged. And the conflict dance teaches us something. All of us have tension. And by the way, if you want uh, intimacy in your relationship, then you're going to have tension. A lot of us think that to have intimacy, intimacy, by the way, means connection, that if you want connection, that it's supposed to be, you know, with connection, it's supposed to be, you know, tension-free. There's no such thing as tension-free. So you start with tension. There's some friction. There's problems and pain and misunderstanding. And frankly, if you want intimacy, then you need tension because that's part of the deal. See, so there's some tension. But then in the negative conflict dance, we immediately go to defensiveness, which means that there's kind of an intent to protect for us. If you're defensive in any of your communication, students, if you're defensive with your kids, if you're defensive with your husband, if you're single and you're defensive with some of your coworkers or whoever it might be, then this becomes a habit. There's a path to, to uh, protect. And that's where we start blaming, we have anger, uh, we control, there's attack, there's kind of eye language appears here. Okay? And so as we get to defensive, but once we get to defensive, then we move pretty quickly to disconnect. If a person is doing any of those things, blaming, anger, control, attack, eye language appearing, etc., then pretty quickly you're going to disconnect. So you disconnect with emotional withdrawal, avoidance, pouting, acting, feeling superior. There's times in my relationship with Kathy where I 
I hear from her, so it must be right, that I come across as superior, okay? Well, that must be in terms of some kind of a defensive disconnect motion, and it's not healthy in the relationship. So we disconnect. A lot of people emotionally withdraw. A lot of men emotionally withdraw. They'll go into a, their cave. As soon as they kind of go into their cave, well, actually, they are disconnecting with the relationship. We're going to talk about how you can do that in a positive way when we look at the positive dance, and then detached. And this becomes what many relationships are about and why many relationships go south because they don't live by the principle of being gentle where they detach. There's bitterness, resentment, contempt, loneliness, unresolved issues. There's lots of fighting. And actually, the last word is deadness. And many relationships, whether you are married or not married, in an opposite-sex relationship become deadness because we're going through this negative conflict dance cycle. The result? Deeper tension and regret. Way too many people, and way too many people even in the church, live with deeper tension and regret in their relationships, and they don't have to. So if you go to the positive dance cycle, this, notice, it starts with friction, problem, pain, misunderstanding, tension. Again, tension isn't bad. It's what we do with tension. So you have a path of of defensiveness or a path of protection because you're trying to protect your own self-image or whatever you're trying to protect instead of a a path of learning. As you do that, you become a we. You assume responsibility. You work together to resolve the issue. So when I'm with a, a married couple and I say, so how's it going with your arguments? And they say, well, you know, who's the enemy? Well, she's the enemy or he's the enemy. Well, many times when you're pointing at her or him, there are three fingers pointing back at you. But the issue isn't in a relationship or in an argument. It's not that one person is the enemy. What you want to do is get the argument out of making it personal, put it out in front of you where you have a we, where you work on it. For example, Kathy and I don't agree on everything. Surprise, surprise. So we don't agree on finances. We don't agree on how we raise our kids. There are certain issues that we don't agree on. There's a lot of issues that we agree on, of course. And so to do that, we have to basically agree to disagree, see? So I'm going to have you put the, the cycle back up so you can stare at this. And so it's a we, tension to we, all of a sudden now it's not as personal. We're not blaming anybody. We're not attacking anybody. We're trying to work on the issue. And we either fix the issue or we agree to disagree. Then when that's happened, where you assume responsibility, where you work together to resolve the, the issue, instead of blaming each other, and feeling hurt, disconnected, destroyed, you now are connected. So you resolve without a win or lose. In any kind of an argument, because we're talking about conflict here, in any kind of an argument, if someone wins, then the battle is lost. And what we many times want to do is win the battle, but we then lose the war. So we resolve without a win or a loss. And when you do that, you're connected. There's a sense of well-being, kind of saying, it's okay. I mean, you've learned new things about each other. And then there's a little word there on that cycle that says peace. And relationships that thrive have peace, see? And if you live with some peace, then you're going to communicate much, much better. It's actually amazing that a thousand years before Jesus Christ, that's the kind of stuff Solomon was helping us understand with some of these principles then the result is what Doug Fields and I from this book are calling authentic oneness. You know, the Bible says that a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What I've learned about that is that it's not just a physical one flesh, but it's actually in marriage and in other types of relationships. As you grow grow closer together, you do become more one. But especially in marriage, you, you have an authentic oneness, if you would. You feel loved, and then you have peace. 
Now, you start with the same issue. It's called tension. But fascinating enough, the principle is be gentle. A gentle answer turns away wrath. It takes great discipline to be gentle in a relationship, especially if you have some anger, especially if you have some other uh, types of issues going on. The last principle, kind of buzzing through these principles, but these are some great principles. The last principle is actually a scripture that's pretty famous. It's a script, and I'll just say the word trust. So we've got be gentle, and then we have trust, but the scripture is really well, well known. And uh, when Solomon penned this so many years ago, I have no idea that he was even thinking in his mind that this would be one of the key Bible verses that they would be learning in children's church and other places. It says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. So in other words, when you trust in the Lord, and when you develop spiritual connection with whoever you're with, that actually that's when our paths go straight. If your path is straight, that's probably your answer, and that's probably what's happening with you. I think that, that Solomon was led astray because he wasn't thinking about this particular scripture. He didn't have that advice because he actually was led astray because he married women who were unbelievers who led him to lack faith and be, and be actually one who turned his back from Yahweh, and that was kind of the demise of, of him. So in all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your ways your, your, your path straight. That's pretty good scripture. It's a pretty important theme for some of us. Somebody here needs to hear that. See. And I, I actually want to challenge you in three different ways, specifically. Number one is, and I'm thinking about you who are married, I'm thinking about you who are not married, you just figure this out with your family, but pray together as often as you can. You know, Dr. David Stoop is in Irvine, and he's been a mentor of mine since... Uh, I was in my 20s, and he's a marriage counselor. He's, uh, he and Jan do a lot of speaking. He's on the radio. He's a phenomenal guy, and he happens to live in our area. And I remember him speaking at one of our events. It's a, a homeward marriage conference that we do. And he looked out at the audience, and he said, the divorce rate is somewhere around 50%. So one out of two. We had 2.4 million marriages last year. And uh, frankly, we have about 1.2 uh, million divorces. That's not a good statistic. That's kind of an embarrassing statistic because the church isn't that different, although we're learning more and more about people who worship together. It's actually quite a bit better, okay? Also, by the way, people who have uh, premarital counseling, premarital coaching, premarital education, it will actually lower the divorce rate by 31%. That's a phenomenal, phenomenal statement, okay? But anyway, one out of two, he said. He said then, quoting a study out of Columbia University, that for a couple who prays together, he said daily, it could even be regularly, but for a couple who prays together regularly, for a family that prays together regularly too, but for a couple who prays together regularly, there is a one out of 1,100 chance of divorce. So what was amazing about this study done at Columbia, not a Christian study, was that when they started looking at prayer, they went, my goodness, it's stronger and healthier than counseling. I'm not saying not to go to counseling. I'm just simply saying that's a phenomenal statement. So I would challenge some of you who are married to pray together more regularly. If you feel uncomfortable praying together, then hold hands and just do it quietly. Spend 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 2 minutes, whatever it might be. But prayer seems to be something that actually releases better understanding. It puts us in right perspective, and it puts trust where it should be. Because many times the communication problem is because we're not trusting in God. How amazing that we want to do relationships right, and we definitely want to do you know, life right, so we want to trust God for our finances, and we want to trust God for our salvation, all these things, but why would we not want to trust God for our relationships as well? So we pray. The next one is a fascinating one. It 
Challenge number two is spend 20 minutes a week developing spiritual formation, whatever that means, with someone else. Now, if you're married, I'm going to challenge you to do that. If you have kids, then I'm going to challenge you to do that. I loved having the kids up here today. The organization I work with, we care deeply about kids. And what's fascinating about that is there's a stain in the world of children's ministry with Rachel or youth ministry here. And the stain is this, that 65% of American young people leave the church when they graduate from high school. That's horrible. You know what? Now studies are showing that there is a 300% better chance if there are faith conversations in the home. So even if you took 20 minutes to have faith conversations, not lecturing, not preaching, but if you were willing to have some faith conversations in the home, then it shows that your kids would have a much greater chance of staying within the faith. Those of you who are married, if you would spend 20 minutes a week in spiritual conversation, spiritual formation, maybe looking at a scripture, maybe going through some kind of a topic, maybe having some faith conversations, praying together. But even doing that, your chance of staying together is raised dramatically. Why would we not want to do this? See, comes out of this whole idea of trust. And lastly, in terms of challenge, I would just simply say, read the book of Proverbs. There's 31 Proverbs. I made a habit years ago to read through the Proverbs every month. I don't do that now, and I probably should go back to it. But there's great wisdom in the Proverbs. You're going to hear more about that in the, next, in the coming weeks. But for some of you, your, my challenge to you is read the book of Proverbs this month. It's amazing because this is the end of the month, so start on September 1st, and you'll be done. I, September has 30 days, right? So you need one extra day. And uh, you could read through the book of Proverbs. It's one chapter a day. It's not huge. It takes five minutes, perhaps. But you get an amazing amount of wisdom from a man who lived a thousand years before Christ, but it's great wisdom. And interestingly enough, it's not just wisdom on communication. It's not just wisdom on relationships. It's wisdom on finances. It's wisdom on direction for your life. It's wisdom on, on who you spend time with. There's just so much within that. So, so three challenges. One is, would you be willing, if you're, especially if you're married or with your kids, to pray daily? Again, just a short prayer. It doesn't have to be long. Would you be willing to spend 20 minutes a week? I know people who do it every Sunday evening. And they make it a part with the family. They make it a part of some fun food and other things, but they, they do it. It's not preachy luxury. It's that they do something kind of fun, but it's also spiritual learning. And also, would you be willing to, to read through the book of Proverbs? You know, that would be an amazing, amazing life change for some of us. You say, well, what is all that, building this foundation, have to do with communication? Actually, think, actually everything. Because the reason that we don't communicate as, as well is because we don't have the foundation to make those kinds of better decisions. People I know who do well are people who spend time with God, who people who, you know, do their life a little better and then their relationship is better as well. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So it's your words. So today basically what we've had is a simple little lesson about Solomon and words. When my mom was dying, she was in hospice, and I was supposed to speak in Colorado. There was a season in my life where I spoke to about a quarter of a million kids a year. And I was supposed to speak at, the Univers at Colorado State. It was going to be about 8,000 kids, and so I was really looking forward to it, and yet at the same time, my mom was dying. So I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but you, know, you start changing you know, plans, and you're not sure what to do. And so I called my friend named Ken Davis, who's one of the finest youth speakers in the world, and I said, Ken, is there any chance that you have these dates open? My mom isn't in good health. I may have to call this organization to, to see if they would let you speak. He's a lot better speaker than me. So I went, great, they'll love that. And so he said he, he could, he would. He lived in Denver. This is just about an hour and 15 minutes away. So I said to the guy, I said, you know, my mom is dying. I'm not sure if I can make it. 
and I never want to cancel on a speaking engagement, but I don't know what to do. And I said, so I've asked Ken Davis if he could take my place in case you want him. I thought the guy would go, praise God from whom all blessings flow. But he said, hey, we had Ken last time, so we'd love to have you. Your face is on the posters and all this kind of stuff, but if, if not, we'll, we'll go with, with Ken. So the day before I come to see my mom, she's in a hospice bed, she's in the in bedroom of my mom and my dad, but she's in a hospice bed, mom and dad beds where I'm sitting on. And I walk in, as I had walked in most every day, and my mom was totally up this time. She had been almost comatose, she'd been on morphine, and she goes, well, Jimmy, I thought you were going to Colorado. I said, well, mom, I didn't want to say, mom, I thought you were going to die. So I said, well, mom, uh, wow, yeah, I changed the subject. I said, yeah, I, I'm, I may. You know, I just didn't know what to do. I was kind of stuttering through this. My dad walks in and goes, hey, Jim, your mom told me you're going to Colorado. Look how good she's doing. What do you think? She's going to die today or something? You know, get your rear to Colorado. Go speak to those kids. Come on back. Your mom's fine. Okay. So I'm kind of the positive uh, thinker. So I call Kathy as I'm coming home, and I go, Kathy, um, mom's doing great. She's actually, she was up, she was watching TV. My dad's actually thinking about taking her out for ice cream. Kathy, who had seen her a few days before, mainly comatose, is thinking that, you know, I'd been smoking something that you shouldn't smoke, that the Bible would say, well, the Bible didn't talk about smoking things like that, but, you know, I was just kind of high. <laughs> so she went, oh. So she says, well, I'll go tomorrow. I'll pack, I'll go tomorrow, I'll check it out. And, and I literally was still talking to my friend Ken, getting him prepped just in case. And we get there, and my mom is up again watching television. She goes, well, Jimmy, I thought you were going to Colorado. I went, well, maybe I am. I kind of look at Kathy, and she goes, this is unbelievable. So I went to Colorado. I speak to those kids that night. There are little red lights on in the hotel room, and my mom had died. I get in the plane to go the, back the next day, and I thought, what were the last words my mom said to me? And then I remembered in the kind of chaos of, you know, leaving and needing to get to John Wayne Airport to fly to Denver and whatnot. I went up to my mom. I gave her a kiss on the forehead, and I said, Mom, I love you, and I'll see you tomorrow. And she said, Jimmy, I love you, and I'm proud of you. And at that point, I, didn't, I missed it because I was so busy going. But now I'm sitting in this airplane grieving that my mom was lost, and I thought, what were the last words she said to me? Amazing. The last word she said to me was, Jimmy, I love you and I'm proud of you. Now I'm an old guy. But yet, I live by the blessing of my mom's words to this day. Words are important. Words make a difference. You know what? We're all called to live by Solomon's principles. It's simple, but it's not easy. This is where we need to call upon God. Let me pray. Almighty God, thank you so much for these men and women. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Solomon, who always didn't get it right, but sure had a lot of wisdom. Thank you for relationships that were in our mind today as the message was being brought to us. And I pray for the relationships, and maybe there's people in here who are struggling like crazy. May, may they be able to tweak something in their own life so that their relationship may be better. I pray for those who can rejoice today because their relationships are good and they're living by these principles. Lord, if there's people here who need to the challenge of perhaps praying regularly with a spouse or with their children, maybe there's somebody who needs to read through Proverbs 31 one more time, but I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts even as we sing in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand together?
before we start singing, would you just, would you put um, those three challenges back on the screen? And um, maybe one of these needs to start for you today in this moment. Maybe you need to respond and pray about this with someone you're with. Um, a couple weeks ago, we did a response and just freed you guys up to um, move about the room, find space to pray with people in the front. And people responded. People came to the front and people prayed together. And um, I want to release you to do that again today. Um, as always, there's people in the front that will pray with you. You can write down a prayer. Um, if you're like me, sometimes I need to just walk, get some space, and really pray through these things. But would you um, just look at that, spend a moment, and just pray about what God is calling you, leading you to respond. God, I look to you, I won't be overwhelmed. Give me vision to see things like you do. God, I look to you, you're where my help comes from. Give me wisdom, you know just what to do. to you. God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. Give me vision to see things like you do. God, I look to you. You're where my help comes from. Give me wisdom. You know just what to do oh, 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 oh. I will love you, Lord 